Well, this is going to be some good news about suffering. <laughs> Brothers and sisters in suffering, old age, sickness, and death, the Buddha way offers us some good news. Buddha's story goes like this. 2,500 years ago, the young Hindu prince Siddhartha Gautama was raised in royal comfort. His father, the king, tried to shield him from all the world's unpleasantness and kept him in the palace with nothing to fear and everything to love and enjoy. Legend has it that up to age 30, his every desire was satisfied. Um, unusual child. <laughs> um, then one day, the improbably innocent Siddhartha and his charioteer ventured out beyond the palace grounds and into the city. There, he encountered for the first time a sick person, an old person, and a dead person with all the grief and suffering that surrounded them. Some accounts say that he took the sick man on his knee to comfort him, and his chariot driver explained to him the shocking truth that old age, sickness, and death was the eventual fate of everyone. Rather than shrinking in fear and disgust from the suffering people, Siddhartha turned toward them in compassion. And it awakened in him a yearning to help all in need. That turning toward rather than away from misery began his seven-year-long investigation into suffering. Not finding satisfactory answers at home, he left palace and family to wander in the forest with the greatest sadhus and spiritual teachers. In Bodh Gaya, northern India, Siddhartha sat himself down in meditation posture under a tree and determined not to, to leave until he had some realization into the nature of self and sorrow. He sat still like that for about seven days and attained unsurpassed, complete, perfect enlightenment. People all over the world are curious about what that enlightenment experience was like. To this day, we can only imagine. He became known thereafter as the Buddha, the Awakened One. Customarily, we have um, Sashin to commemorate that anniversary in February. Look for it. The historical Buddha once summarized his own teachings this way, both formerly and now, it is only suffering that I describe and the cessation of suffering. From the teaching that's come down to us from that time, we can imagine that he experienced the constantly changing nature of all things, the interconnectedness of all things, the non-dual reality of all things, and the illusory nature of the discrete self. I won't go into uh, speculations about the bliss of freedom that he experienced, but you can find it in the texts. 
All of this went into his formulation of what are called the Four Noble Truths regarding the nature of suffering. They were called noble by the earlier followers of the Buddha who thought that the teaching could only be understood by those who had a noble level of spiritual attainment. I don't know if that ranking is appropriate anymore, but that's what it was. The first of the four truths is often translated as life is suffering. I think the Pali word dukkha had a broader range of meaning, which included um, milder dissatisfaction and unease, as well as intense misery. There's the suffering that's defined by the English word that includes physical, emotional, and mental pain. Many of us in the course of our everyday lives are enduring terrible suffering, stress, grief, anxiety, depression, or physical pain. I wouldn't expect to find any one of you innocent of a broken heart. I can understand that life here in this world of 10,000 things will always include the dualisms of happiness and of suffering, as it includes up and down and light and dark. As Buddhists, we teach that all things are made up of shifting relationships. Where then would be found a permanent unchanging entity, such as a deity or an individual soul? So what becomes of the suffering then? Just who is it? that suffers? And who is it that may be free from suffering? No self, no soul, no person. Who then suffers? The second truth that the Buddha taught is that we suffer because every happiness comes to an end. We imagine that we can have the happiness, the light, and the up without the converse pain the dark and the down. Our desire to hold on to something that is, that is uh, impermanent, that is subject to change, leads to suffering. So happiness is, itself is suffering because it's fleeting and unpredictable. Success, health, abundance, anything which fades with the passing of time is this way. Frustrated desire is suffering. This doesn't mean that happiness, success, and bliss are bad or that it's wrong to enjoy them. Can you let yourself feel happiness right now as fully as you can? You are alive and awake. The ground is wet and the sun is warm and beautiful. The plants are happy. You're surrounded by people who love you more than you imagine. Can you feel that without taking it personally, as if you had somehow earned it and are entitled to it? As you enjoy happiness for this moment, can you remember that it must not be taken for granted, for everything that arises passes, and be prepared to also feel fully the loss of it. Can you take this ephemeral time of relative happiness as an opportunity to turn toward 
the suffering of others. As the Buddha did when he encountered that sick man on the road. Over and over again, we don't remember, we forget. Over and over again, the Buddha Dharma helps us remember. To accept the reality of impermanence, the loss of everything we cling to, and the inevitable frustration of our desire is to understand the third truth, that suffering may end with the end of desire. No phenomena is absolute. Everything depends on everything else and only exists in relation to everything else. No security, no safety net, no manual override controls. So even though we like to create fantasy worlds of certainty, we must feel the fluid, conditional nature of our existence down in our bones where we never feel completely secure or completely in control of circumstances. Can you remember that in this world of interconnection and interdependence, ideas of us and them are fundamentally inaccurate? That we are of the same origin, the same substance, the same destiny? The wisdom of this interdependence deepens and inspires our compassion, understanding that none of us is separate. We know that the suffering of others is our suffering. The suffering of one is the suffering of all. The fourth truth that the Buddha taught is that there is a way of life that leads to the reduction of suffering. Basically, it's a way of life based on kindness, truthfulness, self-reflection, compassion, and service. Thanks to the ancestors who passed this teaching along from India to Asia to America and around the world, we have an important and unique way to understand this fact of pain, unease, dissatisfaction, and suffering. While this teaching may be the main point of our practice and central to the Buddha way, we can't, still can't cling even to it as certainty. Over and over, we chant the Heart of Perfect Wisdom Sutra. Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, the embodiment of compassion, while practicing this same deep perfect wisdom, clearly realized that every component of our idea of who we are is insubstantial, and with this uh, realization, transcended suffering. As there is no one to suffer, he said, there is no cause of suffering and no cessation of it. There is no knowledge and no attainment, no one to age and die, and also no one to stay alive and healthy. He saw clearly that there is no substantial nature to the self, that it shifts and changes with everything else and will not be nailed down. When this awareness is taken in fully, what becomes of the suffering experienced by the ephemeral self? Does it even still exist? How can there be suffering if there is no real subject to experience it? Still, 
in this world of 10,000 things, in this world of the illusory, isolated, and separate self, frustration is inevitable in all the depth of feeling of suffering that comes from it. We also chant the loving kindness for Bodhisattva's sutra over and over with the words, bear this in your heart, may all beings be at ease. May they be joyous and live in safety. All living beings, whether weak or strong, small or great, may they all be happy. We may end the chant with a dedication that goes something like, we dedicate this chanting to the well-being of our planted earth and all her creatures. We aim to turn the Dharma wheel unceasingly and to free the world from every tragedy of strife and hatred. Let me interject here an invitation to you to come to Morning Sazen um, at Stone Creek, where we chant these wonderful old uh, texts together in morning service. Yes, we truly want this relief from suffering for all beings, large and small, animate and inanimate. This is our deepest longing and our heart's desire. So while suffering is an inescapable part of impermanent and conditioned existence, compassion calls us to respond to it directly and personally these apparently paradoxical aspects are really one, like the foot before and the foot behind in walking. You could call it the middle way. When you respond from the heart to another person or an animal's suffering, your heart is open and you experience pain with them. My broken-hearted friend whose schizophrenic son abuses and steals from her and makes her life chaotic. The artist friend who is losing his studio and is facing homelessness and the loss of 10 years of his work. Pain is both particular and universal. If your heart is open, it will hurt, maybe more than you can stand, and you may pull away. I meet many people who say they don't read the news because it hurts too much. Yes, it hurts. This is an apocalyptic time in history. Geologists call it the sixth great extinction. Planetary forces have been set in motion that cannot be stopped before resulting in great die-offs of humans as well as many of our beloved plant and animal companions. It's kind of like gradual nuclear war. It's, it's <coughs> our social and political systems seem frozen. frozen in a kind of paralysis that frustrates every attempt at reform, making revolution or fascism our likely future. Enormous suffering. It's scary and it hurts and it's crazy-making. I offer this. Our capacity for compassion may be directly related to our willingness to experience the pain of the world. 
I want to know what's going on. I try to turn toward this suffering and try to grasp the enormity of it, hold it, and to keep my mind at the same time connected to the real world. How else will we know how to respond well? Here's another story of Buddhist time. The recent widow, Kisa Gotami, loved her one child deeply. When her son got sick and died, she refused to believe he was dead. After asking many people in vain for medicine that would revive her child, she was finally directed to the Buddha. When she told him her story, he offered to provide medicine for the child, but he would need some mustard seed obtained from a family in which no one had died. Kisa Gotami went from house to house asking for mustard seed, and many offered her seeds, but then when she asked if someone had died in the family, the universal response was, oh yes, oh yes, of course. After a while, she got it. Death is universal. It was not a personal curse or failure. She left the child's body in eternal ground, returned to the Buddha, and asked to be ordained as a nun. The Buddha turned toward Kisa Gotami's suffering. He didn't try to take away her grief or make her give up her dead child. He showed her the way to the embrace of her community. Poet Robert Bly gave a talk about the Vietnam War one time when he said, we were fighting in Vietnam because we never ate our treatment of the Indians. I never forgot that. All of us suffer the enormous uneaten legacy of slavery and racism. We pathologically project onto others rejected parts of ourselves and demonize them in an effort to cling to some feeling of righteousness or superiority. I see in the news that some of us suffer more than others from this. For those of us who have benefited from that legacy, it is time to turn toward the suffering that results from it with actions in the real world, not just self-reflection. Think ending mass incarceration. Think reparations. Think affirmative action. Think quotas. Think an injury to one is an injury to all. Impossible. They used to say that about ending child labor, women's suffrage, and gay marriage. Impossible, yet in our bodhisattva vows, we say, beings are numberless, I vow to free them. Desires are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. To turn toward suffering, we must engage without hope, without being attached to an outcome. At the same time, we must be concerned about effective strategy and tactics. We must do the best we can to actually achieve positive results. 
So in our service or our actions, we set goals and try to achieve them at the same time realizing the process itself is all there is. When I hear people say they can't pay attention to the news, it's too depressing, too depressing. I think of Joanna Macy's understanding that the antidote to depression is action. I think of Wendell Berry's admonition to live a joyous life, even though you have considered all the facts, <laughs> joyfully engaging in the world of suffering. Avalokitesvara has a thousand arms. There are a thousand ways to express compassion. That's the good news. <laughs> <laughs>